In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea. And we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. And this is something that we desperately need to be reminded in this place together of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Somebody that always did that for me and still does that for me is, is my dad. Uh, Harry Bocal, and, and one of the delights of of planting a new church is is I get to recycle some of those old illustrations from before. Now, unfortunately, there are some of you who may have heard this one before, and so I apologize in advance, but it fits perfectly with where we're headed today. So my dad is like a hero to me, a, a human hero to me. And if you've known my dad, if you know my dad beyond just the surface level, then, then you understand why. He's, he's someone who always leaves places better than he finds them. Uh, he's humble. His joy is unflappable. It's steady through any circumstance or situation. He's, he's easily satisfied no matter what comes. And I admire him in those ways, and I long to be like him in those ways. He's a hero in the faith to me. But he's like that because his joy is found in Jesus, and he's deeply satisfied in Jesus. But my dad has not always been that way. My dad was saved in his 20s. And before that, he was in a thousand different directions, seeking satisfaction and joy in life. One of the directions he went was the recreational use of, I don't have to finish the sentence for all the little ears in the room, but you can imagine a child of the of the 60s and 70s, what he might have done for recreation, and, and uh, he had to find himself a dealer to get those things, and he was a regular connoisseur of those things. And one of the things he would say that he picked up from that day to me, when he would try to encourage me in doing the right thing and not being a hypocrite, is are you smoking what you're selling? kind of a crass way to just like you might say to a used car salesman well would you drive the car right like you're telling me it's a good car you're telling me it's worth my money but would you drive the car or if someone was selling you a home faith selling you would you would you pay that price for the home we asked faith questions like that when she was uh showing us homes because you want to know is it worth right the price or or is it up to all the hype that you're giving to it. So my dad would always say, are you, are you smoking what you're selling? In my teen years, I began to preach, actually, at local camps and local churches and, and youth groups. And I would go around and I took hold of uh, a man named John Piper. If many of you may be familiar with his ministry, he had a book, Don't Waste Your Life. And I took hold of that message and I repackaged it over and over and over again. And and preach to others that there's nothing worthy of giving our life away to that's more worthy than Jesus. But I wasn't living that way. And I don't remember the exact circumstances of that week, but I'm sure it in, involved boiling anger, because I struggled with that, and, 
and it probably included seething sarcasm and, and impatience and and uh, what the church folk at the time would call private sins that my parents had uncovered in, in my life, that I came home and I found a post-it note on the monitor of my computer in my room that simply said in my dad's handwriting, are you smoking what you're selling? Do you truly own what it is that you are proclaiming to the youth in the area at these camps? Are you really taking ownership of what it is that you're teaching in these churches, or are you a hypocrite, son? I thought about that this week because that struck me when it happened, right between the eyes, right in the gut. I still look back to that. I, I tried to find it. I kept it forever. I, I probably, I think I lost it in the past move to our newest home. I had it right up until then. I don't know where that post the note is, but I kept it. Because it hit me the same way that Paul is going to confront Peter today to his face. He's going to ask him that same question, obviously in different language. Peter, are you smoking what you're selling as he confronts him in Antioch? Because the apostles weren't necessarily selling the gospel, but they were proclaiming it. Salvation is found by grace through Jesus by faith. And that's it. Full stop. But yet in Antioch, Peter acts differently and Paul confronts him. And what we'll see today is that regardless of resume or reputation, this is the truth of the gospel, we are all equal in our hopelessness and our helplessness. Peter forgot that for a minute. But, good news, by grace, through faith, Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. doesn't matter where you come from, what your lineage is, what your history is, what your resume is, what your reputation is. Through grace, through faith in Jesus, God does not draw any other lines for who gets in. And who's that? It's found in Christ. And so we're going to see that today. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. First, Paul's going to share the third of his three stories. He has these three testimonies that he has shared from his life. The last two are specifically placed in the timeline. This one's not. This is vaguely introduced. But it is sequential what happens after the, the other two. He says, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now that escalated quickly. Because in the very last verse, the very last verses, they were hand in hand in fellowship. They were uh, applauding the work of Jesus in each other's lives. Jesus called you to, to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. And Jesus has called me to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. It was Jesus who's done this work in you, and it's Jesus who's done this work in me. And there was brotherhood. And there was a relationship there in Christ that was beautiful. But now, Paul's right hand of 
fellowship has turned into a finger in the chest of Peter. Why? What happened? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter, by the way, and I don't know if you remember this story, it's, it's one of the weirder, Acts is full of weird stories, it's one of the weirder ones in the book of Acts. He has this dream, Peter does, or this vision in the middle of the day where this, this tarp full of animals that the Jewish people would have deemed unclean animals, animals they weren't allowed to eat in their diet and in their culture and in their religious following of the Torah, that descends and God says to him, Every meat eater's favorite verse, kill and eat, right? He's like, what? I can't. I'm a Jew. These are unclean. And God tells him, what God has said is clean, let no one say is unclean. Happens twice. And then later that day, a guy named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, repents, trusts Jesus, and receives the Holy Spirit into his life, and Peter begins to understand what's happening. God is about to pour out something that he's promised from the Old Testament on, which is a massive wave of grace on those who are not Jews by birth. He's going to save for himself people. He's been doing it here and there. People like Rahab, who have been brought into the kingdom of God throughout all of Redemptive history. But now in waves, it's going to start happening. Peter got the message. And so he began to try to live in step with grace instead of living in step with the law. And when he got to Antioch, Antioch was an interesting place. Their population was about 10% Jewish, 90% everything else. Syrian, uh, anything you could imagine. As far as lineage is concerned, you would find it there. But there were enough Jews present who were still practicing their old religion, and still practicing the law, the Jewish law, that there would have been a tension, a dynamic, an interesting dynamic in the churches of Antioch. But there were enough Gentiles there that when, when Peter got there, he said, I'm going to live by grace instead of live by the law. And so he would eat with the Gentiles. He would live out, right, what he proclaimed. He wouldn't live like a hypocrite, but when they came, these certain men came from James. Remember James back in Jerusalem, Jesus' brother, sent some men up to Antioch. We don't know why. They came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now listen, if you ever start a group, I, I recommend not using circumcision in the title. It's just confusing. It's not helpful. People think it's kind of weird. But this is, you know, and I think they probably didn't call themselves that. But Paul is kind of ribbing them. He's kind of hitting them in the side and sending a zinger at them. The circumcision party, because that's what they're obsessed with. When they came, Peter, Peter pulls back. He doesn't want anything to do with that anymore. He turns hypocritical. This active and influential group of Judaizers who is now plaguing the churches in Galatia comes to Antioch, and when they do, Peter shows himself to be a hypocrite. 
When the rabble rolls in, his hypocrisy is revealed, but it gets even worse. I forgot verse 13, so I'll read it to you. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So Peter wasn't alone. There was collateral damage. So that even Barnabas, Paul's friend in ministry who had traveled with him on this first missionary journey, was led astray by their hypocrisy. It spread. You see, Peter was the rock. As Jesus builds his church, Peter is going to play one of the most influential roles in the early stages of the early church. He has influence. First sermon he ever ever preached at Pentecost, 3,000 people plus repented and trusted Jesus as their Savior. The guy has influence, and so when he begins to act hypocritically, people follow him. Paul sees this and has to do something about it. But when I saw that their conduct, verse 14, was out of step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, which, by the way, Judaizers, you didn't see this circumcision party, but before you got here, he was eating with all of us over here. right? He's just been acting like this ever since you got here. But if you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He says, you're a hypocrite, man. You're not smoking what you're selling. You're out of step with the gospel. A few general takeaways from this story before we get to the primary ones. One, hypocrisy is contagious. It just is. Hypocrisy is contagious, and in particular, we as people have an extremely weak uh, immunity to anything that is man-centered. And what the Judaizers were proclaiming was man-centered. You can do something to make your faith stick. You can do something to help Jesus save you and keep saving you and making you more like Jesus. You can play a significant role in this, and you must. We love that message because we love ourselves. It's very hard for humans to turn away from being human-centered and turn to being Jesus-centered. And so as Peter opened the door for that in his hypocrisy, of course, it was contagious. Another observation is that Christians need accountability. We need to be able to hold one another accountable for the times that we walk out of step with the gospel. And in particular, leaders need accountability. Peter is a pillar of the church. Paul, in essence, at least in the uh, flow chart, right? God has called him to be an apostle. Nobody can take that away from him. But on the flow chart, Paul isn't a pillar yet. Not in the church. But Peter is. Paul confronts him. It's my prayer that as Mercy Village Church grows, that the leaders of Mercy Village Church will not be above confrontation and accountability. That's recorded so that you can go back. It's so it'll be on here and it'll be on that phone. You can go back and you can get it if I ever buck against it. 
super important. That when we walk out of step with the gospel, we can call each other on it, but this thing matters too, this this observation. Biblical confrontation is bold because biblical confrontation is rooted in care. Paul's not trying to flex his muscles. Paul's not trying to prove himself as some super apostle. Paul's not trying to be like, I'm right and you're wrong, and I can finally get higher on the totem pole than Peter, and this is my chance. That's not his motivation. He knows that Peter, right, in that very first verse, stands condemned. He knows that people are walking out of step with the gospel, and his heart is broken. He doesn't go on a power trip. He's not motivated by control or greed or hate or competition. He's he's motivated by, by love for his brothers and sisters. So those are important takeaways, but they're secondary. The primary takeaways we've seen through this whole, I'm just going to kind of remind us where we are. Chapter 1 and 2, the truth of the gospel, and then we'll move into chapters 3 and 4, creates a diverse family by grace through faith in Jesus. That's what we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4, transformed by the Spirit. We'll see that in verses 5 and 6, how we, as the children of God, as a diverse family of believers, are transformed step by step into Christ's likeness. But what we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 is that there's one gospel. And then Paul has shared three personal testimonies of this reality. His conversion and the revelation of the truth of the gospel to him, the fact that he was accepted by the other apostles, and now this story of him confronting Peter. All of these are testimonies of this reality that there's only one true gospel coming at it from different directions. And then he's going to show us here that we are justified by faith alone in in Jesus alone. But another point that he has been making is that he is worthy to be called an apostle. You've seen that in all three of his testimonies, the conversion story of his early growth. He shares how Jesus revealed himself to Paul long before any of the apostles did, long before he'd heard the gospel from anywhere else, giving legitimacy to his his title of apostle. His first visit to Jerusalem, that story reminds us that the apostles there accepted him as an apostle. So there was that confirmation that was there. And then this story shows that Paul even has the authority to confront other apostles. That's a sub point that's being made. It's the second most important point that Paul is making. It's it's, it's an important one. But the most important one, of course, is that there's only one gospel. The next seven verses are going to close out section one. And they're going to finish us off quickly, but emphatically, with the fact that there's only one true gospel, faith in Jesus alone. Paul says, here's what I want to show you. All of us are equal in our guilt, but all of us have the same opportunity to come into God's family by grace through Jesus. He says in verse 15 and onward, we ourselves, he's talking about Barnabas and and him and whoever else is helping to compose this letter, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We have it in our DNA, and we're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, that's that's tongue-in-cheek, by the way, when he calls them Gentile sinners, we'll come back to that. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, our, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. So he goes from saying the Jews will call Gentiles sinners. That was a thing that they would, would say about the Gentiles. Those Gentile sinners... He says, but we too are proven to be sinners. That's his first point. We are all equal in our hopelessness. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of lineage, regardless of reputation, regardless of resume, we are all equal in our hopelessness. Gentiles are sinners, and we too, the Jews, are sinners as well. Everyone is sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By one man, Adam, sin came into the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. The reality is all of us are sinners. We're born that way. We cannot escape it. It is the reality. We're also not just equal in our, our hopelessness as sinners. We're, we're equal in our helplessness. We can't be justified by our own works. That's why he says things like a person is not... Justified by works of the law, not by works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified. So we not only are equal in our hopelessness, but we're equal in our helplessness. We can't save ourselves. Jew, Gentile, female, male, black, white, young, old, raised in church, not raised in church, trained in uh, seminary, not trained in seminary. Awana clubs, you know, every badge if you were from that. Or no badges. Doesn't matter. Wrong side of the tracks, right side of the tracks, educated, uneducated, rich, poor. It doesn't matter. No one can save themselves. There are no works that you can pull off to bring your own salvation. The playing field is even for each of us. We are all completely... Again, apart from grace, hopeless and helpless. Hear me, though. There's something sweet and clarifying about that place of being hopeless and helpless. I think back, and I'm not making light of it, I actually have a, have a friend from uh, church camp where I grew up. Her dad is, is on the verge of, of dying right now from the... Delta variant of the of, of COVID. His experience is far worse than mine, but I do remember the day after receiving the second COVID vaccine, how helpless I felt, how nauseous I felt, how weak I felt, how tired I felt, how I felt like I couldn't do anything but lay there in bed. And I felt that way several times in my life through different sicknesses. Some of you have felt it to a higher magnitude. There are people on our core team who actually were in the hospital with COVID for long periods of time. There are those in our, on our core team who have seen sicknesses in their family that have brought about long-term struggles and feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. And I wouldn't wish those on anybody, ever. But those who have experienced those things will share with you that 
there is one thing that can happen, and that is a laser focus on what matters. In those situations of helplessness and hopelessness, there's a laser focus on what matters most. Everything else, right, kind of falls away. And what matters is brought to the top. That's what's supposed to happen with the message of our sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves. That in being brought to that place of helplessness and hopelessness, despair even, that life after death is hopeless and helpless for us, that we're brought to a place of laser focus on getting the right answer. What matters most? Knowing how I can get hope and how I can get help. Hear me today, the height of our hope is measured against the depth of our hopelessness. The height of our hope is measured against the depth of our hopelessness. And if your hopelessness is infinite and your Savior Jesus can save you from infinite hopelessness, then He is infinitely valuable and infinitely worthy. Our help is quantified in relation to the magnitude of our helplessness. And if we are infinitely helpless, then our helper, Jesus, when he helps us, is infinitely worthy of our worship. This is what Paul's fighting for. You see, there's grace in grief, there's beauty in brokenness, there's peace in pain, and there's hope and hopelessness, and it has a name, it's Jesus. And he wants the people at the churches of Galatia to see Jesus, and for them to see Jesus as he truly is, they have to see themselves for who they truly are. And for us to see Jesus as he truly is, we have to see ourselves for who we really are. The Judaizers wanted to steal that away. They wanted to bring a little bit of humanity back into salvation. But that cost a little bit of divinity. When you bring humanity into the equation of salvation, you have to subtract some divinity, and that is a trade that Paul was not willing to make. Salvation is all about Jesus through Jesus. That's the beauty of our equal Helplessness is that we have an equal opportunity Savior. The beauty of the gospel is, is not found in anything we do, but it's found in everything that Jesus did. That's why he says in those verses, we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Jesus did the work. Jesus does the work. And his work is enough. This is the gospel. Our inability absorbed in Jesus' ability. Our sin absorbed in His holiness. Our hopelessness absorbed in His hope. Our helplessness absorbed in His help. Our worthlessness absorbed in His infinite worthiness. Our failure absorbed in His success. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous, the worthy, the hope, the help, the righteous for the unrighteous, for the unworthy, for the helpless, 
for the hopeless, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That is the gospel. And that's the gospel we should cling to. And and Paul wants to make uh, an example of that too. We cling to this, right, for a theological reason and for a logical reason. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant to sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now those are some severely complex verses. They really are. There's a lot of complexity underneath them, but thankfully in the coming, especially the next two chapters, it's going to get unpacked in some detail, so I'll just give you the short version for today. We're going to really get after what he's saying there. There's some complex realities beneath it, but what he's saying in general is the law cannot save. It can't. It can only condemn. When we put ourselves up against the Old Testament law, against the rules that God has for His people, against any of the things that God calls His people to, those things, those actions can't save us. Instead, they just show us, I keep missing the mark. I can't measure up. I can't get it done. I can't, I can't be perfect. I can't be good enough. That's what the law does for us. In doing so, it, it, it holds us under condemnation. But in that condemnation, the law calls us to look to the Messiah promised in the Old Testament law to fulfill our salvation. So some of the Jews called Gentiles sinners. But in doing so, they showed that they didn't get it. They thought too highly of themselves. But they didn't see that even though they lived under the law, they still didn't live up to the law. They thought living under the law made them better than the Gentiles. But just like the Gentiles, the Jews too failed to live up to the law. They didn't meet the standards. So some Jews called the Gentiles sinners. Furthermore, some Jews trusted Jesus to save them, but they trusted their own works of the law to keep them, right? Now, Jesus will save me, but for me to stay a Christian, I have to continue in these works of the law. I have to play my part. They didn't get it either. The law cannot save, and it cannot sanctify. It cannot make us right before God, and it cannot make us like Jesus. But does this make Jesus a promoter of sin? That's the question he's asking. Because Jesus saves people in and says, you're righteous before me, but all of us knuckleheads keep on sinning, keep on acting like idiots, keep on messing up, keep on falling short of the law, does that mean that, that Jesus is now, or that God is now a promoter of sin? Welcome to the family, go do as you please. Welcome to the family, you're righteous now, just live however you want. Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that God transforms people from the inside out, not the outside in. We don't justify ourselves by everything that we do externally. We're justified internally by the grace of God, through Jesus, through faith. And that transforms us outwardly. But it has to happen from the inside out, not the outside in. We're going to unpack that further in in upcoming chapters. He makes another kind of funny argument. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, or, or uh, um, 
Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says, what I just spent time doing in the churches of Galatia, what I've spent time doing through my entire ministry, is tearing down this belief that the law can save you. And so if I say the law can't save you, but then I start doing what Peter did and acting like it can, because I'm not going to eat with these Gentiles anymore, right? God saved me. I'm, I'm a child of God. Now I've got to clean my act up and start acting by all these rules and, and regulations so that God will keep me in the family. Am I not just like building a tower with one hand and then knocking it down with the other? Wouldn't it be foolish? Wouldn't I just be undermining myself to go, to go along with that? Jesus' grace is strong enough to, to get the job done. He doesn't need your help. So he doesn't, he, he doesn't need any additional works from us. Jesus is strong enough to save us, and he's strong enough to keep us. That's Paul's experience. He shares it in verse 19. For through the, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The point of the law, always and we'll see this in the coming chapters too, was always to prove itself impotent. Not irrelevant, but impotent. In the sense that it can't save sinners. It has relevance. It has importance. It shows us the standard. It shows us the holiness of God. It shows us how deeply we need a Savior. The law is vastly important, but it can't Save, And that was always the point of the law. And Paul learned it the hard way because he tried to live by the law better than anyone else probably in his day or as good as anyone else in his day ever could have. He tried to obey the law. The laws of the Old Testament. But all he found was that he came up short time and time again. But eventually the Messiah knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus and said, Don't you see that the law pointed to Jesus? It pointed to me. It pointed to the Messiah. And in that moment, Paul came to faith and he trusted. He died to the law and he came alive to God. This is the gospel. So he finishes with a crescendo. Right? He's wrapping up section one and, and Paul, if nobody else, hopefully the church at Galatia, by the time they get here, they're excited about these realities. Hopefully we, as Christians, are excited about these realities. But even if none of us are, Paul was. So he starts writing, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, I have died to my own ideas of how I can save myself. I have died to the idea that I can make myself right before God. I have been crucified instead with Christ. His sacrifice for sin. His death on the cross. His resurrection. I am counting on that. Banking on that for my salvation. And in that, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But it's not only Jesus who saves. It's also Jesus who makes us more like himself. It's him who sanctifies, he goes on, and the life I now live in the flesh, right? I'm a Christian now. Paul's, this is basically what he's saying in simple terms. I'm now a Christian. I have been made right before God through faith in Jesus. I'm secure. But now, I go on living as a Christian. God sees me as righteous, but I am being made righteous too. 
I am becoming more and more like Jesus day by day by day. The fancy terms are justification, made right with God, and sanctification, being made into Christ-likeness. One happens through faith, by grace. One happens by grace through faith over the long haul. The first in a moment of faith, by God's grace, justified, counted righteous. The second, day after day, moment by moment, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, four steps back, more and more like Jesus. But all of that is done through faith in Jesus who gave himself for us. So grace is the hill he's going to die on. Because grace is the only place that he'll ever find true life. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if I was saved through the law or sanctified through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is why he stood toe-to-toe with Peter. This is why he he stood toe-to-toe with Peter was for Peter, for Barnabas, for the church, because grace is either enough full stop or it isn't. Grace is either enough end of discussion or it isn't. But what Paul knew in his heart was that grace had to be enough because he knew that he wasn't enough. He knew he didn't have enough inside of him to be made right before God or to even begin to reflect Christ-likeness, and I know that I'm not enough. Grace has to get me all the way there, or I ain't going to make it. Grace has to save me and sanctify me, or it's never going to happen. But God, rich in mercy, gives Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the good news of the gospel. So what are you banking on for salvation? Peter had these words. By the way, Peter falters in Antioch. But Peter didn't stop. Peter received that confrontation, we know from church history, with grace and repentance, and he kept on preaching the gospel to the point where he'll eventually, church history tells us, be crucified upside down because he won't shut up about the grace of Jesus. He won't shut up about a a, a Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised from the dead. And Peter got it right in in Acts chapter 4, when he was preaching a little sermonette before the Sanhedrin. He said, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Jesus. If you're not a Christian today, what are you banking on? Who are you banking on for salvation? It has to be Jesus, not yourself. Come to the point today, if you're not a Christian, where you say, I can't make it on my own. I can't save myself. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, who are you banking on for your sanctification? Are you banking on yourself or are you are you banking on Jesus? Are you a hypocrite? believes the truth of the gospel for your salvation but doesn't believe it for your sanctification or are you trusting Jesus day by day by day the life I now live Christian this is your verse your 
testimony. You can't live it in your own power, in your own flesh, in your own strength. It has to be through faith in the Son of God. If you're going to overcome that addiction, if you're going to uh, defeat that pesky anger problem or that whatever it is, right? You think about the stuff this week that has plagued you. The things that you look at and you say about yourself, that's not like Jesus, but I want it to be. Those things are not going to change in your strength. They're only going to change through the power of Jesus and through faith in Him. He loved you and He gave Himself for you. So reject any religious, world, personal viewpoint that makes less of Jesus by making more of you. We don't need any of that in the church. We don't need anything that elevates humanity at the cost of devaluing the work of Jesus. Now, that's not me, that's not me saying that we need to all walk around feeling worthless. No, we need to find our worth in what Jesus has done. And there's infinite worth to be found. And two, embrace the true gospel, which makes much of Jesus. And I just wrote four things. Ingest it. Intake the word of God. Be in it. I'm not, that's not a legalistic trope. It's a passionate plea for your joy. Open up the Bible. Listen to it. Engage it. Ingest the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it to yourself. Remember the truth of the gospel. We have to be reminded of it. Proclaim it to one another. Proclaim it to those who are lost. Bestow it. This is important. Never forget who you are without Jesus. Because if you do, you'll start to be prideful and pious instead of grateful and gracious. If you start to think that anything that you are now happened through your own energy and effort, then you'll look at other Christians who, who maybe aren't getting the job done like you think they would, and you'll withdraw just like Peter did. You'll look down your nose just like Peter did. The only thing that, that keeps us from dividing is remembering that we're all equal in our hopelessness and helplessness if it wasn't for Jesus. That'll make you love your neighbor. That'll make you be patient with your brother and sister in Christ. If you can remember that you too, that I too am an idiot if it's not for Jesus, I can get along with other idiots too. Because of grace. And then defend it. Armed with Christ-like concern and spirit-filled love. And I put that in bold font in my notes because that matters. If you ain't going to do it in love, and you aren't going to do it controlled by the Holy Spirit, then keep your mouth shut. But if in love, and filled with the Spirit, you have the opportunity to de defend the true realities of the gospel, do it. We as the children of God should stand up within the church against any viewpoint that makes less of Jesus. The true gospel is worthy of all this and more. Because regardless of resume or reputation, we are all equal in our hopelessness and our helplessness. But good news, by grace through faith, Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. Father, thank you for these realities. I'm struck by them afresh this week. Pray that all of us will be. It's such a, a, a very 
churchy message. I, I, I feel like it's, it just seems so basic. But it's the basics that we need so desperately. Please remind us today in our helplessness and in our hopelessness that, that we're no better than anyone else, that, that we're uh, all desperately in need of Jesus and so we can extend kindness and grace and mercy and love to one another all over the place. But also know that through Jesus, we are chil- your children. We have an inheritance. We have beautiful promises that are ours through Christ. And so may we be those people in the way we live our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.